Okay. Hi, welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number 11 of Sauron Defeated. Uh, and we carry on with the Notion Club papers. Uh, as uh, tonight we are going to get, hopefully, we will get to the place where um, we will see what uh, they were hinting at last week when they talked about a myth or story exploding uh, into the primary world. Um, so, uh, uh, as of course it, it, it does rather significantly, right, uh, here. Um, yeah, Stephen uh, says he's listening to Lewis's essays, and particularly when he mentions science fiction and stuff, it's uh, uh, sort of fascinating to read that while also reading this. Yeah, um, there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of ways in which uh, a lot of the things that Lewis says in his uh, uh, his critical essays um, kind of come into play uh, here um, uh, in some pretty interesting ways, I think, Stephen. Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, okay, cool. Um, so quick announcements, uh, before uh, we get going, nothing big and new. The, um, uh, the Signum semester is in its second week now, which means if you're still thinking about auditing or something, you've got until Sunday. We are, we have a hard, hard deadline on signups after that point. Uh, so, uh, Keep that in mind, but um, so that, but there is still a few days if you wanted to uh, still sign up. We have uh, the two moots still coming up. You can still register for both of them, um, and that is the, uh, uh, the New England moot, which is on the 29th of September, Sunday the 29th of September uh, in Amherst, Massachusetts, and then middle moot on Saturday, October 12th uh, in Waterloo, Iowa. So... Um, uh, they're, uh, they're, yes, Tomas, I just saw your registration come in. That's great. Um, so yeah, I, no, no, they just closed the, uh, call for papers just like last weekend. So they don't, we don't have the program yet, but, uh, but we'll get there. We'll get there. Um, uh, so, you know, that's great. Looking forward to seeing you there. Uh, and Julie, yes, I announced the vote results last week. So our next book after this is going to be Wizard of Earthsea by Ursula Le Guin, our second Ursula Le Guin here uh, in the Mythgard Academy, our, our first non-Tolkien repeat author, as uh, uh, somebody was pointing out. So uh, anyway, so that's going to be great. Looking forward to uh, uh, to talking about Wizard of Earthsea with you guys. Uh, win slash if we finish <laughs> Sauron defeated. Um uh, concerning which we are slightly behind schedule, but that's okay. Um, and the last thing, oh yeah, uh, tomorrow night. So tomorrow night, September 5th, Thursday, September 5th at 8.30 p.m., uh, we are going to have our discussion of the Netflix Watership Down miniseries adaptation uh, that just was released last Christmas. Um, uh, so it's going to be, uh, it's the, the September Mythgard Movie Club session. Really looking forward to that. I actually just finished. Uh, I couldn't help myself. So see, I rewatched the series like a week ago, uh, in preparation uh, for our discussion of the of the minis, which I hadn't watched since like the day it came out. Um, and then um, we, uh, uh, and then uh, but then I had to read the book again. Like I had to, right? Um, so I just <laughs> just. Uh, this morning finished uh, the epilogue of Watership Down again um, and uh, I'm already I'm, I am pumped uh, 
uh, in fact, I've gotten some like really fun ideas uh, from this reread and thinking through the series and stuff like that. So really looking forward to that discussion tomorrow night. So that's tomorrow night at 8.30 p.m. Um, I, we will definitely broadcast that on the Twitch channel as well. And of course, you can find the link, uh, the GoToWebinar link uh, for participation that way uh, on the MythGuard.org homepage as well. So anyway, uh, that's, uh, that's what's coming up here. Um, okay, excellent. And yes, James, it is so true. I got through all of my slides, like exactly all of my slides last week. So I was, I was on the move. Um, it's, uh, it's, uh, pretty cool. Um, so, all right, let us, uh, let us get back into the text here. So we were talking about Laudam's languages, right? And he, we had just gotten to the point where Laudam was explaining his A, B, and C lists of languages, right? And uh, how there were different qualities in the different, you know, he had def- of the words that had been coming through, because it was primarily single words, mostly nouns, as he said, very few verbs, um, very little syntax. Um, but... Uh, of those words that were coming through, he was able to sort them out, right? There was, you know, some were definitely from this one language, language A, the other one was from this other language, language B, and then there was the grab bag, right? And a bunch of those were Anglo-Saxon, right? So, no, he set those aside. The Anglo-Saxon were sort of different, but there was a lot of Anglo-Saxon mixed into all of this, right? So, tonight we're going to return to, um, we're, we're going to return to um, the... Uh, him sort of explaining more and giving more context about these languages that have been coming through. And so this is in response to people asking for more information about these two languages. There seems to be no connection between the two languages there, but there are some words that are the same or very similar in both. The word for sky or the heavens is menel in language A and minil in B. A form of it occurs in minil tarik, pillar of heaven that I mentioned just now. And there seems to be some connection between the A word, Valar, which seems to mean something like the powers, we might say gods perhaps, and the B plural, Avaloim, Avaloim, and the place, and the place name, Avaloni. Although that is a B name, it is with it, oddly enough, that I associate language A. So if you want to get rid of algebra, you can call A Avalonian, and B, Adunaic. I do myself. The name Earendil, by the way, belongs to Avalonian, which contains Eare, the open sea, and the stem Endil, love, devotion. That may look a bit odd, but lots of the Avalonian stems begin with ND, MB, NG, which lose their D, B, or G when they stand alone. The corresponding Adunaic name, apparently meaning just the same, is Azrubel. A large number of names seem to have double forms like this, almost as if one people spoke two languages. If that is so, I suppose the situation could be paralleled by the use of, say, Chinese in Japan, or indeed of Latin in Europe, as if a man could be called Godwin and also Theophilus or Amadeus. But even so, two different peoples must come into the story somewhere. Okay, so we can see uh, here the way in which Laudum is 
fleshing out the story based only on word lists, right? So he's building word lists based on these words that are coming through. But from these word, from the study of these word lists, he is beginning to piece together the narrative that fits in, right? And this process, of course, this process by Laudum is very attractive for, again, some of those semi... Um, uh, semi-autobiographical ways, right? And here's where, you know, there are some places where I think, like, we really don't want to be autobiographical. There's some places where it's totally irresistible, and it seems pretty clear that Tolkien is certainly talking about his own experience, as when he talks about the dream that he admitted that he had as a recurring dream. Um, but then there are these other places that are kind of halfway in the middle, right? Um, because on the one hand, we know that this process is kind of like his story-making process, right? His stories, the Silmarillion stories, do start with languages and linguistic relationships, and from those linguistic relationships, stories emerge, right? Um, now, that does not necessarily mean that these word lists were, like, coming through to him from somewhere else, right? And we talked about this even in the context of The Lost Road, um, the way that Alboin talked about in The Lost Road, the, the you know, first hero uh, in The Lost Road, um, the way that he talked about sort of receiving these words. And we talked there about how that sounds like a little bit um, autobiographical. But, you know we can't necessarily be confident that that's exactly what it was like. But again, it sounds a lot like the way he pretty consistently talks about um, discovering things and not inventing them, right? Um, it seems more like maybe an exaggeration or a kind of a dramatization of the experience that he actually has. Even remember Loudham's getting upset when he was accused of making up these languages? Right, and he's like, "No, you're totally missing the point. I'm not inventing these languages, right? I'm hearing these languages. I'm like a seer, except I'm a hearer, right?" Um, and he strongly objected um, uh, to uh, uh, to the idea, you know, to the assertion that these languages that he's talking about in this way, that this is just a circuitous or sort of fictionalized. Um, way of avoiding confessing that he made these languages up, right? Um, so, again, it's not that I think that this account of Laudum is meant to be directly autobiographical. Um, although, again, Christopher's notes keep pointing us back in, the, in that direction, don't they? Like all these things that he keep... Like the fact that, and I forgot to mention this last time, uh, the bit about Norman Keeps, right? The barber named Norman Keeps, who is actually Tolkien's barber, right? Uh, yeah, I mean, that kind of thing it keeps coming up. I mean, again, you just can't run away from autobiography uh, in the Notion Club papers. And so I like to think that this paragraph here, the second paragraph here in particular, gives us some kind of insight into what that process, the process of working from language to story, how he begins with the discovery of words and languages, the sorting of words into different lists, right? Taking these words, these sound combinations, which perhaps to some extent he doesn't feel like he is simply inventing, right? 
um, but which he's kind of hearing, which he's kind of feels like he's discovering, right? Like this, you know, that this, this, like this word menel is not just an arbitrary word like jibber-jabber. Remember, sky was the example that he gave before, right? If you're making up a language, you could say jibber-jabber means sky, right? Um, if you want to do that, you can be completely arbitrary. Um, Loudham's explanation, or even kind of um, almost parody, of the language invention situation, again, sounds very much... Uh, was an interesting insight into Tolkien's thoughts about the language invention process, right? And one of the things clearly that he is resistant to, or to put it a different way, what like real language work is for Tolkien is not inventing something new and cunning, right? But rather finding something fitting. It's not about inventing a clever word for sky, right? That fits a clever system that you've made. I mean, you can do that. Um, but at a certain point, as he said, you're just code making. You're not really language building. If you're a real language building, does seem for Tolkien to be more about discovery than it is about invention, right? Finding the right word for sky, right in a couple different senses, something which is like that's that's an appropriate word for sky. It's connected with sky. The sound of that word in some way invokes the sky appropriately but also in the sense of it's fitting with that language, right? Um, it's appropriate in that sense as well, um, forming an, or, an organic part of this language that you're discovering and not just arbitrarily inventing. Um, but of course, from that, right? So you begin with that process, and then from there, the stories grow, right? And how the story grows here is really, really interesting. It's, it's tempting to see this. And I think that, you know, when I read this, the first time I read this, which was years ago, of course, um, when I first read this years ago, I remember, like, I couldn't get the Akalabeth out of my head, right? I couldn't, I mean, I knew the, the, the Numenor story, right? And so I was reading this almost kind of backwards, right? That is, knowing what the sort of semi-final story of Numenor was, right? I was thinking about that all the way through. And so, to me, it felt like we're just retconning. We're just backfitting, right? Um, as if he's inventing this sort of circuitous way of this fictional character discovering the Numenor story, which, like, we already knew. As if Tolkien's process really had been to first invent the Numenor story from scratch and then go back and retrofit it to the languages, right? And, of course, the more I've gone on, the more I've come to understand, um, you know, studying the, uh, the Tree of Tongues with you guys when we were uh, back in Volume 5 in The Lost Road, um, was a really revelatory experience for me. That time when we read and talked about that together was, I feel like, the first time I ever really got it, like, really understood it. Tolkien's... The relationship between Tolkien's language invention process and his storytelling is so alien to me. Like, I, my brain does not work that way. I could never, never, never write stories that way. 
Um, not saying I couldn't write stories, but it wouldn't happen that way for me. And I never really wrapped my brain about it. Um, and I always thought, or rather, like unconsciously, I think, I always sort of, I don't know, took what he said about his stories emerging from his languages with kind of a grain of salt or like as if he were sort of exaggerating about that, like the languages came first or that he was saying that like what that statement really meant was something like, but the invented languages are really important to me, you know, or, uh, or something like that, you know, and the, the statement in particular that like the, um, uh, the, you know, the Silmarillion stories emerged in order to give the necessary background of history for Elvish tongues, that always sounded like an exaggeration. Like he can't mean that literally. Right. But of course, you know, I've come to see more and even, you know, recently better, better and better, you know, uh, in just the last few years, um, beginning to sort of wrap my own imagination around the way Tolkien's creative mind really does seem to work. And this paragraph I seems strikes me not just as retrofitting, right? Not just as inventing a fictional process whereby a fictional character, Loudham, uh, you know, painstakingly arrives at a mostly correct conclusion about a story that he already has fully formed in his mind already, right? Instead, this seems to me very likely to be something like uh, at least a dramatization of something like the way his own story writing actually happens. First, you have the two languages, and then you perceive the relationship between those two languages, right? How do Adonaic and Avalonian work? What is their relationship together? Given that these two languages seem to be spoken in one place, given the the overlapping of names and things like that, what does that suggest? What is the story that's going on, right? If that's the case, right? And so we begin. He begins to flesh out an idea. So there's there's got to be two peoples, right? One for whom Avalonian is their native language, and the other for whom Adonaic is their native language. But you've, but also it seems to be a situation, not like you know French and English in Europe, or maybe that's a bad example, like French and German um, in Europe, but of Latin in Europe. Um, that sense that he gets that the Avalonian language is used by the Adunaic people in the way that. Um, in the way that Latin is used. And it's the names that leads him to that conclusion, right? Um, just as, as if a man could be called Godwin, like so in a, a medieval Englishman whose name is Godwin, right? But he would translate his name into Latin, right? So Theophilus or Amadeus, Greek or Latin translations of his, uh, of his name, Godwin, right? Um, so... The fact that you have one person who is sometimes known as Godwin and sometimes known as Amadeus, right, depending on what language he's translating, it suggests that his native tongue and this other tongue, like Latin, right, coexist, but aren't in competition, right? That there's this kind of overlay, like the way that, uh, like the way that Latin overlay the vernacular um, in Europe, right, in the Middle Ages. 
So, and exactly, Mar- uh, uh, Mary, this seems to be why um, Laudum refers to Avalonian as the Elvish Latin, right? Um, absolutely. So again, he, um, from all, so from just this fairly small pool of evidence, right, just the word lists, you see how the story begins to grow, the story begins to emerge, or rather, the story begins to be discovered. What is the situation? What is the narrative situation? What is the history that fits this situation? Um, uh, and uh, I get, so this isn't one of those moments that strikes me as exactly autobiographical in the sense of Tolkien really explaining something like his own experiences, like dreams he had and, and perhaps even theories that he has about his dreams or about the experiences that he's had in dreams or things like that. Um, but that this does, I think, give us some real insight. If you really want to know um, what that process is like, what that process of going from language to story in Tolkien's mind is, how it works, that, I think, is a really good description of how most of the Silmarillion stories had their genesis, like the the, the main concepts of the Silmarillion stories. Things like... Uh, the separation, right? The the elf, you know, the, some of the elf kindred remaining in Middle Earth while others went to Valinor, and then the exile, right? Um, those are situations. Those those plot lines, those stories, were embedded in the languages, in what strikes me as very very similar uh, to these uh, to these ways. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Nancy says I like that he uses Chinese in Japan as an example because it's so like what they uh, what they do here, finding a writing system that doesn't really suit the language and kind of smooshing them together. Yeah, it's interesting. I don't know enough about either Chinese or Japanese to uh, be able to uh, speak uh, very clearly on on that relationship and that history uh, myself. But yeah, I, I do think it's interesting that that he uh, does both of those parallels, Chinese and Japan. Uh, and Latin in Europe. All right. Now back to that Anglo-Saxon. You remember that I said Anglo-Saxon used to come through mixed up with this other queer stuff as if it had some special connection with it? Well, I got hold of Anglo-Saxon through the ordinary books later on. I began to learn it properly before I was 15, and that confused the issue. Yet it is an odd fact that, though I found most of these words already there, waiting for me, in the printed vocabularies and dictionaries, there were some, and they still come through now and again, that are not there at all. To us, for instance, apparently used as an equivalent of, of, the, of the Avalonian Valar, and Noendeland for Numenore, and other compound names too, like Freafiras, Regeneard, and Midsweepen. Some were very in very archaic form, like Habainswil, Pillar of Heaven, or Frumaldi, or very antique indeed, like Wihawinia, which word defeats even Christopher, right? Christopher has no idea what Wihawinia means. Um, uh, and again, I love... Uh, this is, first of all, at the very simplest level... This is a delightful um, glimpse into Tolkien's linguistic play, like how much 
he enjoyed having fun with languages. It's not just about making up your own language, right? And again, just as thinking back uh, once more to Loudham's commentary on mere invention, right? Just making up a fake language and risking doing just code making, right? Again, what's even cooler is to speculate, to do creative philology, right? Speculate about antique words, you know, go backwards in Anglo-Saxon style, uh, back through to Mary, I agree, uh, Wehawinia does sound Gothic. Um, very antique indeed, right? So something like between Gothic and Anglo-Saxon, but you know, meaning what we're not quite sure which, uh, which, um, but, um, anyway, yeah, uh, the way that he plays with this, the way that he doesn't just, again, invent his own languages and his own world, but the way in which he always, and this was always so important for Tolkien from the very beginning, it's one of the most persistent elements of Tolkien's mythology, is the way in which it was always connected to our world and our mythology, right? It was never, ever just a fantasy world, right? Just a, a, a completely theoretical sub-creation. It was always linked to our, to our world. Um, explaining things in our world, right? Historically linked to our world. Linguistically linked to our world. So if the ancient, if the very early Anglo-Saxons had had some connection with the Numenorians, right, after the downfall of Numenor or the sinking of Atlantis, whichever way you want to say it, um, it would, uh, you know, there would be remnants, right? Back in old Anglo-Saxon, there would be uh, memories of this, which might not make it into the modern word lists because it wasn't recorded, right? Too early to be recorded consistently. No, those texts that referred to these things never, uh, never came down, right? Um, so the references to the to the lordly men and and uh, uh, and, and the pillar of heaven and uh, and, and all those things, right? Um, we don't uh, we don't hear. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Tiwas, Tomas, as I'm recalling, is the one that's related to, um, linguistically, is related to the, um, the Norse god Tyr. The version of the name from which the word Tuesday comes, uh, in modern English, um, that's the immediate root. But basically, so he's taking that word which was used of a god, right, and saying there's this older form of it. So, like, that that, that idea, right, the god Tu, who was, um, like, you know, who was the Norse god Tyr, um, or became, was identified with the Norse god Tyr, like, that that is just a corruption, right? It's a later corruption of an older concept in which, basically, that Anglo-Saxon word, that old word, meant the gods, meant the Valar, essentially. Um, okay, so we've got these antique Anglo-Saxon words which seem to refer to... So we have a three... An, almost a three-language situation, but not quite, right? So again, so what's the story? What is the story that continues to emerge? So we had this land in which there was this Avalonian kind of court tongue, 
but the native tongue of Adunayak simultaneously, such that even people had two names and referred to themselves or wrote their own names in different ways. Um, but now, but it's also coming into contact with Anglo-Saxon. So you've got those queer, the queer stuff, right? Those other languages, those alien languages, Avalonian and Adunayak, but they seem to be coming into contact with this, uh, with our this familiar language, not in the way of of showing influ- linguistic influence, right? But cultural influence, as if the Anglo-Saxons were coming into contact with these same, had been inherit- inheriting these ideas. Right? Why would they talk about the pillar of heaven, for instance, these old Anglo-Saxons? Because they were in some way um, interacting with the Numenorians, apparently. Right? Uh, as can be seen also from their word, which they had from the fact that they had words uh, for Numenor and for the Numenorians as well. Okay, so again, what's the, what's the story? Uh, so we have a, a crack by one of the other people in the room. I forget who makes the crack, frankly, maybe, um, about um, how his lingu- Loudham's theories, he better not trot out his theories, you know, uh, unless they agree with the standard teachings of the mainstream philologists, right? You needn't worry, said Loudham. I've no intent of publishing this stuff, and I haven't come across anything very controversial anyway. After all, Anglo-Saxon is pretty near home in place and time, and it's been closely worked. There's not much margin for wide errors, not even in pronunciation. What I hear is more, is more, or, less, is more or less what the received doctrine would lead me to expect, except in one point. It is so slow. Remember that he's not a seer, he's a hearer, right? And so... When the Anglo-Saxon words come through, he's not seeing them, he's hearing them. So the number one contribution that um, Loudham has to make that might contradict the teaching of, you know, contemporary philologists uh, is that the Anglo-Saxons didn't actually pronounce words the way that we think, or rather not at the rate in which we think. It is so slow. Compared with us urban chirrupers, the farmers and mariners of the past simply mouthed, savored words like meat and wine and honey on their tongues, especially when declaiming. They made a scrap of verse majestically sonorous, like thunder moving on a slow wind or the tramp of mourners at the funeral of a king. We just gabble the stuff. But even that is no news to philologists in theory, though the realization of it in sound is something mere theory hardly prepares you for. And, of course, the philologists would be very interested in my echoes of the very archaic, even early Germanic, of the very archaic English, even early Germanic, if they could be got to believe that they were genuine. Um, so, two things interest me in particular about this particular linguistic declaration of Laudum. One is, I love Tolkien's discussion of the theory versus practice of language and the way in which, through this creative, exor- this creative exercise, which is the Notion Club papers, right, we see him imagining an embodiment of the language, which, even if it, even in the extent to which it coincides with the, uh, um, you know, with the, theories, 
right? It's not that it necessarily contradicts um, the linguist, the you know the the popular uh, linguistic theories, but uh, even if it doesn't contradict them, it's it's one thing to have a theory, and it's another thing to actually hear it. It's one thing to be exposed to it in practice. And thinking about Tolkien's professional career, the the reason I think that this is so interesting, again, do I think that he's claiming to have this kind of, you know, insight into uh, uh, Anglo-Saxon practice? No, I don't think he's claiming that. Um, you know, to have this kind of direct exposure. But again, you think about the contrast between... Um, you think about the contrast between what the work he was kind of supposed to be doing as a scholar, right? The work that he should have been doing in writing articles and books and things like that. Um, that is, um, that is, uh, more like just the pure theory, right? The creative work that he's doing here, the creative work he's doing in this story, the creative work that he does in The Lord of the Rings and The Silmarillion, is more like practice, right? Um, although it doesn't count, right? And like the, it's not like the philologists aren't going to take it seriously, as he suggests there at the end of, uh, um, at the end of the paragraph here. Um, there does seem to me to be a sense in which, by, like doing language, right? By doing philology um, in the way that he did, by making it practical in the way that, even if it's only imaginative, right? That has, I think, real value, which is parallel to, like, I'm actually hearing the voice of an ancient, of a very archaic Englishman, right? Um, and how they actually spoke. It's not exactly the same thing, but I think that there's a kind of parallel there which is really interesting to me. Matthew is asking, uh, am I right to feel some Barfield influence here? Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. Now, his Barfield influence um, uh, is pretty clear here. Not only here, but in this whole section. Loudham's influence in particular. Yeah. Um, and yeah, Tomas, exactly. Tomas says, I think that through writing fiction, he can express what he thinks without the scientific proof needed in academia. Absolutely. And not only that, Tomas, not only does it sort of free him up to explore these theories which he couldn't 100% um, you know, assert in uh, uh, you know, in an academic context um, you know, he uh, he still is able to um, uh, it's, it, it's, it's more than just enabling him to you know, do that with less uh, um with less proof. Again, that's sort of part of it. Um, but it's, but it's more than that too, right? It, it's a different kind of experience. It's a different kind of relationship with the language, uh, than the mere theoretical study. And the fact that Loudon places that emphasis, right? That difference between the practical, you know, actually hearing it and the theory, right? The realization, that's his word, right? To realize the language, instead of only studying the theory. And again, that, I think, through his fiction, through his creative works, um, 
is um, is definitely um, realization. I think is is a, a very appropriate way uh, to think about that. Here's the other thing that this passage makes me think of. It's interesting because of all the urban chirrupers, uh, he himself. Um, if you'd never heard a recording of Tolkien's voice and never heard any comments from his students or friends, right, you might think, reading this paragraph, that he's, like, on his own hobby horse here, right? That he himself has this, like, pet peeve about people who read, you know, Anglo-Saxon poetry too fast and that it's, it's supposed to be slow and majestically sonorous, right? But if you actually hear him talk and listen to recordings, um, exactly, Mary, he was an extremely rapid speaker. Uh, I get, he chirruped more than anybody else chirruped uh, in his acquaintance. He chirruped so much uh, that people couldn't always understand even just his normal conversation, his regular talk. Um, and there were, you know, students of his who came to his lectures who were like, I can't even understand what this guy's saying. And of course, if you listen to recordings of him reciting poetry, he recites poetry really fast, especially good grief. Listen to him read Quenya, right? Listen to his performance of Galadriel's poem in Quenya, right? And wow. I mean, he rips that off. It's unbelievable how fast he goes. Um, now, again, that's Avalonian, and he's not talking about that. He was talking about Anglo-Saxon. Um, but again, that's the thing that's so interesting to me. Talk about, you know, realization through, like, imagination, through, through you know, this kind of creative endeavor. Um, it's like the, the conclusion that he comes to here, the creative conclusion that he comes to, the realization that he comes to, is contrary to his own personal practice, in fact. Um, and that, to me, is really fascinating. Um, yeah. And yet, Yana, I agree. Uh, when he describes how his own poem should be read, um, it, he, uh, it very rarely, I mean, they're not usually meant to be read fast, but it is like he can't help himself. The only one exception to that, Yana, of course, is Errantry, right? Which you're supposed to read as fast as you can. Uh, and it's almost like Yana, in that case, he intended Errantry to be a kind of joke that was very suitable for him, for his own performance of it, right? Um, but, um, but yeah, most of the rest of his poems, he just, like, that's, that's how it comes off his tongue. But it's not how he hears it in his head. Um, and I think that that's another way, Tomas, in which he is, through his fiction, able to kind of realize things that he, you know, that's different from, uh, from what he actually sort of thinks and does. Um... Oh, sorry. Okay. So more on the Anglo-Saxon stuff. He says, here's a bit that might intrigue them, the, his, the, his philological colleagues. It's very primitive in form, though I use a less horrific notation than is usual. But you had better see this. He brought out from his pocket several scraps of paper and passed them round. Westra lage vegas rechtas, requas nu isti. 
That came through years ago, long before I could interpret it, and it has constantly been repeated in various forms. Westra laga wegas rechtas, orek was nu isti. Westweg was richtweg, woch is nupa. And so on and on and on in many snatches and dream echoes, down from what looks like very ancient Germanic to Old English. A straight way lay westward. Now it is bent. Um, yeah. So, um, that is, uh, we're beginning to see. To, yes, Matthew, and my Germanic philology is. Not very good. There are lots of people who are better at this than I am. But yes, the first is Gothic, I believe. Um, and, uh, and then the, the, the second one there is, uh, is Anglo-Saxon. Um, you'll remember, of course, uh, the word walch. He had talked about the word walch. Remember, that was the example that he gave, crooked. The example that he gave of a word that came through audially when he was a kid and didn't know Anglo-Saxon, so he wrote it like W-O-O-K or, you know, W-O-O-F, you know, trying to figure out how Woch might, might, be, uh, might be spelled. Um, and so now it comes back, right? Where was he he- hearing the word Woch? Uh, he was hearing it in this repeated phrase, right? So... What are we again now? So, what's the story? Notice how both Tolkien and Loudham, having set us on the trail, right, kind of leave us to it. What's the story? Okay, so how does all this fit together? Loudham, Loudham gave us a glimpse of how the two languages, Avalonian and Adunayic, fit together, right? But now, how they come into contact with the Anglo-Saxon. So they come into contact with Anglo-Saxon and with older... So, but it wasn't, so it wasn't the Anglo-Saxons who knew the Numenorians, who encountered them and received vocabulary or had words for Numenorian, voca- for Numenorian things, right? Those are survivals. Antique, though they be, they still are survivals from an earlier time, right? If this memory, this mythical statement, a straight way lay westward, now it is bent. If that lament, if that concept, if that one-sentence myth, right? Because that's really what that is, a one-sentence myth. If that myth is passed down, we can see it being passed down, right? constantly repeated in various forms, which, of course, being a philologist, he knows is um, uh, being passed, that means it's being passed down over time, right? We have generations and generations and, of gen- and generations of people remembering this myth. So those words, those vo- that, 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 that antique vocabulary, and the, the repeated instance of this begin to help us to see We've got the Adonaic and Avalonian situation, and then they came into contact with the people in our world. Back before the Anglo-Saxon era, right? When people were still speaking very ancient Germanic. And, but 
that memory was retained. It was not just a fleeting thing, right? It wasn't just a brief contact with the Numenorians at that time, which was then remembered, right? It's too persistent for that. And what's more, this saying suggests something more than that, too, right? A real... First of all, the the sense of lament that's attached to it, and also a sort of familiarity with things. Right? This is not just like they have a piece of vocabulary for Numenor, right? Like the, there's a word for Numenor in their tongue. That would show that there was some interchange between the two cultures, perhaps, right? But this is more than that. An enduring story, an enduring memory of Numenor, of the Numenorian situation, of the post-Numenorian situation, has lingered in these cultures over the years, right? So we're beginning to get a glimpse of the Numenorian exile, right? Of survivors of the fall of Numenor living among people in Middle-earth, right? In Europe. Okay. It sounds to me now almost like my own father speaking across gray seas of world and time. So this is, this is a, a verse that came through. My soul's desire over the sea torrents forth bids me fare, that I afar should seek over the ancient water's awful mountains, elf friend's island in the outer world. For no harp have I heart, no hand for gold, in no wife delight, in the world no hope, one wish only for the wave's tumult. I know now, of course, that these lines very closely resemble some of the verses in the middle of the seafarer, as that strange old poem of longing is usually called. But they are not the same. In the text preserved in manuscript, it runs, El, uh, it runs El Peo Digra Eard, the land of aliens, not Albuina or Alfmina, as it would have been spelt later, of the Alfwinas, the elf friends. I think mine is probably the older and better text. It is in a much older form in spelling, anyway. But I dare say I should get into trouble, as Pip suggests, if I put it into a serious journal. Now, as Christopher hints, this probably suggests that Tolkien himself actually did think that the manuscript of the Seafarer was corrupt at this point, right? He probably is actually... Because this, this is a passage from the Seafarer. Right, but it's an it's an adjusted passage from this. He's taken a passage from the seafarer and he's altered it, right? And uh, those words from Loudon probably do imply that Tolkien himself did believe that the manuscript was not right at this point. That the scribe had screwed up the poem at this point. And this is Tolkien doing a semi-fictional semi-creative, well, definitely creative, recreation of the earlier version of the poem that the scribe of the manuscript was writing down and messing up at this point, right? Um, He can't prove it. He would probably get into trouble if he tried to put it into a serious journal, Um, but I would not be a bit surprised if uh, this were actually uh, Tolkien's theory about this passage. In any case, whether or not he really believed that this precisely was the passage that should have come into it, the fact that he has taken that... 
I don't know that he would necessarily say, like, no, like, the real poem should actually talk about elf friends, but rather, he does believe there's this passage in the Seafarer that doesn't fit, that isn't quite right, that is probably a corruption of a different earlier version. So he takes the liberty of fitting that to the story that he's telling, right? What if that corruption looked like this? What if this were the original version? Then now it fits into the into this world that he is making, right? Um, yeah, Zachary says, uh, him possibly believing this or something like it makes the line, mine is the better text, much more amusing. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean... He's saying he's literally saying here, like, I'm pretty sure I can improve on the seafarer, right? Um, but honestly, you know, Zach, the thing is that is in fact how Anglo-Saxon scholars talk all the time, right? Um, I mean, you are essentially asserting when you say, "Oh, this is obviously a scribal error," right? I mean, one of the things that you're kind of doing is say, like, I know better, right? Um, my judgment is superior to the judgment of this scribe, which I'm not saying is not true. It may well be most of the time, right? But what you are as a scholar, in fact, saying is I can think of a better version of this poem, and I think it more likely that the poet would have said something like this than like what the scribe wrote, right? Um, So yeah, like mine is the better text is kind of the often unstated subtext Right of that, and Tolkien was absolutely not above that kind of thing. Right, I mean, he did that kind of thing all the time. In fact, look at his Beowulf notes. Right, he does that kind of thing all the time. Um, but this is a kind of um, exceptional moment there um, uh, uh, for uh, uh, for <laughs> for Tolkien speaking on here on the. I mean, the Seafarer is a pretty major piece of, uh, I mean, it's not Beowulf, but it's in like the second layer below Beowulf, right? I mean, you got Beowulf and then you've got like the Wanderer, the Seafarer and the Battle of Malden, right? I mean, these are major, major uh, Anglo-Saxon texts. Uh, not, nothing obscure here, right? Um, but um, yeah, so it's not quite like correcting it Shakespeare and saying, no, that's not what Shakespeare meant. He meant something else. But it's kind of like what? Correcting Marlowe? I don't know. Um, but anyway, uh, so, but thinking back again to the story now that is being built here and notice two things. So first of all, so back to our story, um, the seafarer, this is an Anglo-Saxon poem, right? So it's a poem of a later age, a poem, as he says, a strange old poem of longing, right? So you've got this strange old poem of longing. He now has an explanation for it. He has a context. The, that poem now fits into his um, now fits into his story, right? Why? Why do we get this strain in Anglo-Saxon poetry? This strain of longing associated with the sea. For no harp have I heart, no hand for gold, in no wife delight, in the world no hope, one wish only for the wave's tumult. Why? Well, it makes sense if they've been separated from their homeland, right? If there are even now, in the Anglo-Saxon period, when the seafarer is being written, or at least being recorded, there are still those who retain the memory 
of what has been lost, right? Um, not necessarily personal survivors who are still alive, right? But if that has remained an active tradition, an active, uh, a, a, a really uh, a still potent myth, right? Uh, that has been kind of spliced into and forms therefore not a dominant element in Anglo-Saxon literature, not a dominant element in the Germanic tradition, but a thread, right? That keeps peeking out of the tapestry here and there, right? That's seems to be Laudam's interpretation of the seafarer, his reinterpret and f f linked to his reinterpretation of these lines, uh, and his uh, the the way that all of this sort of creatively and mythically fits together, right? Serious journals wouldn't be interested, but this is coming together. But you'll notice now, with Laudam himself, he's also doing another parallel, right? On the one hand, you have the way that this story of the Anglo-Saxon tradition and this thread in the, in the Germanic tradition is coming together, but it's also being personally linked to Laudam's own story, right? As he comes to understand these things more, it, under, it explains or helps him to understand what happened to his father. Why did his father keep going out to sea? Right, This passage in The Seafarer now sounds to him almost like my own father speaking across gray seas of world and time. His father, Edwin, who went to sea and vanished and never came back. Right On his ship, the Arendel, with his three crewmen. Right? Um, so the overlay of the Germanic history, right, which in, through which now Laudum is tracing this Atlantean uh, th uh, thread, right, and Laudum's own story, own personal story of his father and his own name, and of course those Edwin. Uh, those Edwin Alfwina pairs, right, that uh, seem to be repeated throughout history, as he keeps noticing, and of course was a major thread of The Lost Road as well. All of this begins to come together, right? So we begin to see through the story of Edwin, the Mariner, um, on the Arendel, um, we begin to see how this world that Laudum is discovering through these languages that are coming through is coming into contact with the... It's not, this is not just a secondary world, right? It's coming into contact with the primary world. It is myth, and it is also fact. Ooh, okay. It was not until quite recently that I picked up echoes of some other lines that are not found at all among the preserved fragments of the Old Distinguished Verses. So I'll see if I can do... I don't know if I can do majestically sonorous. I don't think I have the right voice for majestically sonorous, but I'll try to read this slowly. Thus quath alfwine, weed last aadwine sunu, fela bith on waste wagum werum uncudra, wondra on wichta, wulitschena land, erd yeard Alpha and Asa Bliss, lit aini wat hulk his langoth sea, 
Thomtha Fsides Eldo Yet Wafed. Yet Wafeth, sorry. Thus spake Alfwina, the far-traveled, son of Eadwina. There is many a thing in the west of the world unknown to men, marvels and strange beings, a land lovely to look on, the dwelling place of the elves and the bliss of the gods. Little doth any man know what longing is his, whom old age cutteth off from return. I think my father went before Eld should cut him off, but what of Edwina's son? Yeah. Well, yeah, Kuridal's close to majestic, I think I can get. Um, it's, I think it's important here that he gives this verse in both forms, right? Um, in part because you can look up the seafarer yourself, right? But this, of course, Tolkien is making up. Um, Thus spake Alfwina, the far-traveled son of Eadwina. And notice how these two things are coming so powerfully together uh, for uh, Laudum here. He is Eadwina's son, right? He is Edwin's son, and his name is Alfwina, right? I mean, this this thing that he has heard sounds almost like instructions, right? But notice the, the particular eeriness of this. If the seafarer, if that passage from the seafarer, the, you know, correct version that he heard, not the one that you read based on the corrupted manuscript. Um, if the version of the seafarer sounded like his father's voice echoing across the gray spaces of, 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 of space and time, um, speaking to him of the longing of the sea, speaking in his father's voice, notice whose voice this is? This is his voice. He's hearing his own voice speak these verses. Thus spake Alfwina, or at least he's being quoted, right? Thus spake Alfwina, the far-traveled son of Edwina. There is many a thing in the west of the world unknown to men, marvels and strange beings, a land lovely to look on, the dwelling place of the elves and the bliss of the gods. Little doth any man know what longing is his whom old age cutteth off from return. This is... In a sense, this is something like a key for the languages, right? There is many a thing in the West of the world unknown to men, right? This is pointing to Avalone, the dwelling place of the elves and the bliss of the gods. And then we get the key to the Angus, to the Germanic thread, the Germanic mythic thread. Little doth any man know what longing is his whom old age cutteth off from return. That's the seafarer, right? That's that longing. That's that sentence that keeps coming through, right? Westweg was richtweg, woch is nupa. A straight way lay westward, now it is bent. Right? That's the longing. A straight way lay westward, now it is bent. And of course, it's not just old age that cuts you off from return. And he applies it directly to his own father, to his own family, to his own experience. My father went before Eld should cut him off. What of Edwina's son? Because again, this is not just, am I going to follow in my father's footsteps? 
right? Should I also be seeking for the West, for the uncrooked road, right? It's more than that, though. What of Edwina's son? That question means several things. It means, what should I do? Is there, do I have a job? Do I have a role to play here, like my father? Am I still part of the story of, that my father was wrapped up in? But it means more than that, too. Because Edwina's son was also presumably a historical person, right? Somebody from centuries ago. What of Edwina's son? Who is him but not him? Then he comes in excitedly with the fragment. The fragment of Adonaiac. O Sauron Tule Nukomna Lantanar Turkildi Nu Hienena Tarkalian something Tarkalian Ochtakarai Valanar Numa Heruvi Arda Sakante Leneme Eluvataran something Eari Ulier Ikiliana something Numenore Atal Ataltane Kado Zugurun Zabathan Unaka Eruhinim Dubdam Urgudalad Ar Farazonun Azagara Avaloyada Barim An Adun Yorachtam Daira Saibathma Eruvo Azria Du Forsa Akhasada, something, Anadune, Ziran, Hikalaba, something, Buhiba, Dulgi, something, Balik, Hazad, Animruzir, Azulada. Okay, so we're shifting from, we start in the Avalone, in the Avalonian, right, and then we shift to Adunaic, right? And he's been able to translate much of it. First of all, remember he says that he was seeing this like it was written down, like he was seeing a page of text that he was remembering, right? This didn't come, this is the first time he's been a seer as well as a hearer, right? And Sauron, I don't know what the word Sauron means, something, right? And something came, humbled, something fell, something or other, under shadow, and then Tarkalion something, whoever that is, war made on powers, something lords of west, earth rent with leave of Eluvataran, whatever that means. Seas should flow into chasm, Numenor fell down. So what is this? This is a short plot summary, right, of the downfall of Numenor. Sauron is humbled, right? He came humbled. And then the Turkildi fell under shadow. Tarkalion, the king, of course, Arpharazan, the king of Numenor, made war on the powers. And the lords of the west rent the earth with the leave of Iluvatar. Seas should flow, right? 
the uh, mood of the verb is important there, right? Um, with the leave of Iluvatar, so like, we've got this sense of like, it is decreed that the seas should flow into the chasm. Interesting that that's not in the indicative, right? Um, or even like the imperative, like seas flow into the chasm. It's not imperative, right? It's not in the imperative mood, uh, nor is it in the indicative mood. Right. Um, then they made the seas flow into the chasm or something like that. Right. Then he made the seas flow into a chasm. He made a chasm and the seas flowed in. Right. Um, it's not that um, it's in the subjunctive. And so therefore it's like uh, he decreed that the seas should flow into the chasm. It's speaking in terms of like a command of Iluvatar. Right. Or what was done with the leave of Iluvatar, what Iluvatar gave leave for. So that construction is really kind of interesting. So see, unlike frankly, I do think that syntax is interesting. Right? Anyway, um, and then Numenor fell down. I love that translation, by the way. Numenor fell down, right? And it cannot get up, apparently. Um, okay, now we shift into Adonaiac. And so Zigurun, which is Sauron, right? We've got the, we, we, we've encountered that already. Humbled he came. Uh, something Eruhinim, we know what that is too. The children of Eru, right? Fell under shadow. Arpharazon, we know what that is, right? Tarkalion, the king, was warring against powers. Lords of West broke earth, ascent with, from Eruvo, right? Uh, 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 Ascent with from Eru, right? Again, we, we, we know the word there. Seas so as to gush into chasm. Notice the mood of the verb there again. So as to gush, right? Um, once again, we have that same kind of subjunctive feel, the emphasis on the, uh, on the command. Seas so as to gush into chasm. Numenor beloved, she fell down. Winds black. Ships seven of Nimruzir. An-Nimruzir. So that's another name. So the seven ships of Nimruzir eastward. Okay, so what do we have here? A translation. Right, okay, and I don't just mean into English. But A and B are translations of each other. Right? So we have the same plot summary given in two different forms. First in Avalonian and second in Adunaic. Okay. What's different? What do we learn? What do we learn about the story from the differences in the two translations? First of all, can I double check? Is my audio coming through? Okay, I'm noticing the, the picture, the video picture is jumpy. I want to make sure the audio is... I don't care if the picture is jumpy as long as the audio is coming through. Okay, cool. Good. Um, great. So, what do we see? What, do we, what can we conclude? No. We do not begin with conclusions. We begin with observations. What do you notice? What do you notice between those two passages which are sort of translations of each other? Yeah, Tomas, exactly. He, find, he, he found the Numenorean Rosetta Stone. Exactly. It's almost exactly what it is. Yeah. 
Really interesting. Okay, Stephen, yeah, it's not the same words that are missing. That is kind of interesting, isn't it? And it does suggest um, Tomas like the Rosetta Stone, right? That we can that we can tentatively maybe backfill some of the other things, right? Um, yeah, that is uh, that is really interesting. Um, what else? No ships in the first one, Jennifer. Yes, good, good. No ships. Seven ships of Onimruzir eastward? The first one just ends with Numenor fell down. Right? Numenor has fallen and it can't get up. Um, we go on for quite a bit after that. Not only do we get a reference to the ships, we get a reference to the black winds in the B text, in the Adonaic text. Oh, man. Yeah, sorry. Great. I can see that my... Uh... Hmm. Oh, dear. Okay, am I, am I back now? Audio better? Still choppy? Sorry. I appear to be having internet issues. No. Darn it. Um, I might need to go out and come back in again. Might need to come go out and come back in again. Sorry about that. Don't exactly know what the problem is here. Um, hmm. Oh dear. Okay. Um, Hmm. Okay. Well, sorry. Um, okay. The audio is back. Okay. Is okay now. All right. Let me see if I can carry on. It looks like I might be having some kind of weird technical issues tonight. So if I get cut off early, then we'll just resume next week. So I'll try to get through as much as we can. Okay. Sorry. So back to observations. Um, yeah, uh, I, I think, Zach, you are pointing out the word beloved. Yes, Numenor is called... We've got Anadune Ziran. Numenor beloved, she fell down, right? Rather than just Numenor fell down. So we don't have an exact translation, it seems, right? What we have is two separate accounts. One kind of plain one, right, given in Avalonian and another more detailed, more personal one, uh, right, given in Adonaiic. Um, and some of those uh, um, more... You know, I sort of wonder... I'm not sure what to make of some of the syntactic differences. Like, for instance, the difference between war made on powers and was warring against powers... I don't know how significant that syntactical shift necessarily is. Maybe it's really significant, but maybe it's not really significant. Um, I'm not really sure. Um, but, um, yeah. Oh, good. very good, Karita. I was, I was missing that one, but you're right. That's a huge one. Um, look at Sauron at the beginning. 
Sauron came humbled, something fell. Something fell under the shadow, right? I think it's the Torkildi that are falling under the shower, uh, sh- shadow, not the shower, the shadow, right? <laughs> They're not falling in the shower. That's a different story, right? Um, and But the, uh, the, the Sauron humbled, he came... Uh, so the Eruhinim is probably the same as the Turkildi, right? Um, so probably humbled he came is represents just like how the syntax works differently here uh, in Adonaiic. Um, and it probably is, in both cases, the Turkildi and the Eruhinim who are falling under the shadow. Probably, I think. Um... But, um, and some of the trans, whoops, sorry, some of the words that are given in translation probably aren't significant, like the difference between rent and broke here, right? Um, probably not a huge difference, but interesting. I also am interested in should flow versus so as to gush, right? Just that gush is a, a much more colorful word. Uh, that he's using here. But again, clearly the biggest difference is this last bit. The black winds and the seven ships of Animruzir going eastward. Right? An additional account. A further memory. But then we keep going. Aganalo, Boroda, Nenud. Something Zaira, Nenud. Something Adun, Izindi, Batan, Taido, Ayada, Ido, Katha, Batina, Loki. Death shadow heavy on us, longing is on us. West straight road once went, now all roads crooked. He has discovered the source of the myth. Why does he keep hearing that in Anglo-Saxon and Germanic and Old Germanic, right? Why does he keep hearing all these things? Because the, he gets it now. Okay, you know, talk about Rosetta Stone, right? Now he's getting that same phrase. But it's like the mythic Rosetta Stone, right? Um, not just for languages, but for myth. It comes from the Adunayic. The death shadow is heavy on us. Longing is on us. West, the straight road once went west, and now all roads are crooked. Vaihaya, seen Andore, far away now is land of gift. Ephalak, Idon, Yozayan, far away now is land of gift. Ephel, Ephalak, Idon, Hiakalabeth. Far, far away now is she that hath fallen. Haya vai haya seen atalante. Far, far away now is the downfallen. This is... Notice how the relationship between the two languages has now changed. In the first passages, it sounded like a prose synopsis and a translated prose synopsis, though from a different perspective and, and added more. So two different accounts in two different languages. Um, but still almost a translation of the same thing, like they're based on the same thing, right? 
This is different. This is not a translation. Uh, in the one sense, you might say, well, hang on. This is... Um, this is uh, um, even more direct, right? I mean, they're saying exactly the same thing. There's no difference, really, between far away now is land of gift and far away now is she that hath fallen. It's, they're saying exactly the same thing in each one, right? So if the pattern was, say it in one language, translate it in another language, here it's doing it even more, right? Except it doesn't sound like that at all. Right now, it sounds like a chorus. Now it sounds like something that is being sung and echoed, especially because of the pattern, the A B B A pattern. Right, A B first, the Avalonian synopsis, the sort of bare Avalonian synopsis, the more personal and detailed Adunaic synopsis, the Adunaic lament. Death shadow of the exiles. Death shadow is heavy on us. Longing is on us. West straight road once went. Now all roads are crooked. And then now what sounds almost antiphonal, right? The Avalonian lament echoed by the Adonaiic, then the Adonaiic echoed by the Avalonian. This is not just a translation anymore, right? This is like call and response, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yes, good, exactly, Stephen. We can see the progression, right? The land of gift is far away, and then she that hath fallen is far, far away, right? Thy hyacin, ephelak idon, ephel ephelak idon, Haya vai haya scene, right? We can see it in both languages. Um, as both of them continue acting. It, Devorah, I was thinking the same thing. It sounds really liturgical. I, I totally agree. Um, very much like that. Again, it's not, not just a translation anymore. Clearly not just a translation. What we see here are these two... This is... It's more like a... It could be two different populations who are joining together to lament this, to tell the same story and lament the same story, or it could be one people who is remembering this in the two different languages, thinking of the way that the two languages fit together in Numenor as Laudan was already beginning to perceive, right? And the kind, you know, think of the, um, you think of the emotional impact, right, um, of being a Numenorean exile and singing or, or, or saying or chanting those last four lines in those two different languages. To say those two statements twice each in those languages and notice the shape, right? You notice the shape. Elvish, Numenorean, Numenorean, Elvish, right? The lament is at its heart a Numenorean thing, an Adunayak thing, right? But it's like embraced. It's it's sort of echoed on either end by the Elvish, right? Um, and you can see that a bunch of different ways, right? The Elvish story is the story that comes first and uh, uh, and ends after, right? Um, 
the Numenorian story is just a segment in the middle of it, right? <clears throat> but both are echoing the same lament. Um, there are a bunch of different ways that I think one can construe that. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, but of course, that makes this speech up here at the top even more poignant, right? Death shadow heavy on us, longing is on us. West straight road once went, now all roads are crooked, right? Um, and notice I say once all roads are crooked. It doesn't say are. There's no verb there. Now all roads crooked. Which means in this... Um, <laughs> look at the whole thing. There are no verbs. There's one verb. Yeah, there's one verb. Death shadow heavy on us, longing on us. West straight road once went, now all roads crooked. Ayada. Ayada is the only verb in that whole lament. Now, maybe one of the or two of the missing words is a verb, right? But what comes of what comes through to his memory, there is only one verb. Ayada went. And it's the straight road that went. The lament is about the going, right? Um, and that which has gone, because of which the death shadow is heavy on us and the longing is on us. Devorah, yeah, exactly. There's one verb, and it's in the past tense, and it's about leaving, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, Bruce, it reminds me a lot, too, of the, uh, the, the, the psalm about weeping by the rivers of Babylon. Absolutely, yeah. Um, you know, maybe, Bruce, I, I, I you know, the, as uh, Loudham said, the sort of Semitic feel of, uh, of the Adonaic language was already kind of, uh, I was already thinking sort of Psalms-ish thoughts as a consequence. Um, but, um, but yeah, yeah, um, it, it, it does definitely remind me of that, too. Um, cool. <laughs> Karita, I like Karita was saying that the uh, the ABBA, uh, she's just kind of like an elvish hug. <laughs> I I like that. I like that. I I, I like that a lot actually. Uh, that works for me. Um. Anyway, really awesome stuff. But again, one of the things I'm trying to do here, and again, notice how both Loudham and Tolkien kind of leave it to us, right? is to begin to see the story emerging. Not just what is being revealed to us through the words, but what's being revealed to us through the words, right? Through the language itself, through the languages themselves. Um, and if I were a better philologist, doubtless there would be more stories for me to begin to see here about the relationship of, you know, if uh, Tomas, I could make better use of the Rosetta Stone that we're being given here, right? Um, such that I could kind of go and really be thinking more about things like Turkildi and Erohinim, right? About Arfarazonun and Tarkalian. Even the more, uh, you know, about things like um, uh, Valinar up here and Avaloyada down here, right? Um, you know, what kind of 
stories can we get? Do we begin to see, perceive behind some of these things? Well, I don't know enough to read those stories, but I don't doubt that there are some there as well between Akalabeth, he Akalabeth and Atalante. Um, yeah, anyway, okay. He goes on to explain, These are only fragmentary sentences, of course, and not by any means all that I heard, but they are all that I could seize and get written down. Text 1 is bilingual, though they are not identical, and the B version is a little longer. That's only because I could remember a bit more of it, he says. They correspond so closely because I heard the A version a sentence at a time, with the B version immediately following in the same voice, as if by someone, as if someone was reading out of an ancient book and translating it bit by bit for his audience. Then there came a long, dark gap, or a picture of confusion and darkness, in which the word echoes were lost in a noise of winds and waves, like a black wind or something. And then I got a kind of lamentation or chant, of which I have put down all that I can now remember. You'll notice the order is altered at the end. There were two voices here, one singing A and the other singing B. And the chant always ended up as I have set it out. A, B, B, A. The last word was always Atalanta. I can give you no idea of how moving it was. Horribly moving. I can still feel the weight of a great loss myself, as if I shall never be really happy on these shores again. Yeah. <laughs> no, Stephen. I don't think he's suggesting that ABBA is horribly moving. Um, but I do understand the temptation to draw that conclusion. Anyway, um, so um, his extra context here uh, is uh, is interesting. And I wonder... Again, my own philology is too uh, poor, I think, to um, uh, be able to understand it better. But he says that the extra bits we were noticing, of course, at the end about the black winds and the seven ships, uh, there, that was probably there in the A version, too. He just didn't remember as much of it. Okay, so maybe they are, in fact, identical, except I don't think they are identical, right? Um what I'm wondering are things like the beloved thing. Is that just a, a lapse to um, the differences in the phrasing? Is the differencing in the phrasing just because the syntax of the two languages are different? Or is there, in fact, a different flavor? Maybe, maybe not. Maybe it's just, uh, just a simple translation, right? Yeah, Devorah, the, the she of Numenor was another, the she fell down, right? Because, Devorah, I was noticing that particularly in the lament, right? The difference between the downfallen and she that hath fallen, right? And it seems to be represented not just in the translation, right? Atalante versus he Akalabeth, right? The he, I assume, is the she part, the she that hath fallen. I might be wrong, but I think that that's what that means. Um, in which case, it does seem that there is still a difference. 
uh, in the way that it's being expressed in the Adonaic compared uh, to um, the Avalonian. Okay. Right, I already did that one. Zigur, said Jeremy in a strange voice. We stared at him. He was sitting with his eyes closed, and he looked very pale. Beads of sweat were on his face. I say, what's the matter, Jerry? cried frankly. Open the other window, Raymer, and let's have some more air. I think there's a storm brewing. Zigur, cried Jeremy again in a remote, strained voice. You spoke of him yourself not long ago, cursing the name. Can you have forgotten him, Nimruzir? There's that name, right, the seven ships? I had, forgo I had forgotten, Loudham answered, but now I begin to remember. He stood still and clenched his fists. His brow lowered, his brow lowered, it's not lowering, it's lowering, and his eyes glittered. There was a glimmer of lightning far away through the darkening window. Away in the west over the roofs, the sky was going dead black. There came a distant rumor of thunder. Um, um, yeah, oh, Stephen, you're right. The Numenorians did come in nine ships in the War of the Rings, right? That seems to be a later innovation. Uh, yes, yeah, I think that's just a change in the story. Jeremy is suddenly coming over all Numenorian, right? Um, remember that he and Raymer and Loudum had been consulting with each other since the earlier meeting, right? Remember also the business near the beginning of this second section where it, when we were talking about Camelot and going back and seeing Camelot back in the context of discussing, like, will you see myth or will you see history? Um... And then uh, talking, you know, Jeremy th saying there may have been a time when there was really no difference, right? Um, uh, Matthew thinking very much of, uh, of um, uh, oh, it's obviously getting late. Barfield. Goodness. Thank you. Why did I lose Barfield's name? Yes. Thinking very much of Barfield uh, 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 during during those uh, uh, moments. Anyway. Um, OK. Yeah. So um, so he, and remember, at that time, they said that like two people together would be able to do it better, would be able to travel back better to see. Remember, Raymer's like, yeah, I could probably go back to Camelot. Wouldn't be tough, right? Ain't no thing. Go back and visit Camelot. Um, but it'd be easier with two. And so now here all of a sudden we have Jeremy suddenly seeming to be having this memory, this Numenorean memory. And then um, as his memory triggers Laudum's memory. That now he begins to remember. And when this happens, when the two of them come together and begin to remember together, that's when we get an explosion in the primary world. As Raymer said, we probably would get an explosion in the primary, a myth exploding into the primary world. And it explodes almost literally in the great storm. Brief note. Anybody notice anything interesting in this footnote? Christopher tells us that in text E, Laudum cries out, Es sorni heru heruian an, 
the eagles of the lords are at hand. This was changed later to the eagles of the powers of the west are at hand. Sorni numa valion aner. In an earlier rejected version of the passage, Laudum's words were Soroni numa heroin etuler. One word, well, two words jumped out at me, one word in especial. Soroni. Sorni and Soroni. Yeah. Out of the Silent Planet. In Out of the Silent Planet, there are three species of Hnau. So in Lewis's first space book, which of course we know was one of the initial items of discussion in the Notion Club papers, um, we talked about the uh, the Hrosa, who are the species that uh, Ransom meets uh, on Malacandra, on Mars, um, and gets to know and from whom he learns their language. Uh, one of the other species, of course, Lewis calls the Sorns, though the plural of the word Sorn in the language of uh, the Hrosa is Soroni. And this word is the word for eagles, right, uh, that Laudum is saying here. And, of course, the Sorns, the Soroni, uh, in Mars, uh, are related to birds. They have feathers, like old, you know, they're like evolved birds. Uh, they have, uh, uh, they have like feathery growth on their skin, um, and like long, exceptionally aquiline faces. Um, I don't know what to do with this exactly, but I cannot believe that that is a coincidence. Um, it would be one thing if the mere word form were there. Sorn with the plural Soroni. Um, it would, that would be, you know, maybe I, you could, that maybe that could be a kind of coincidence, right? But the eagle bird connection drives it way beyond the realm of coincidence. Of course, Out of the Silent Planet was published years before this. Um, but I don't think that that proves that, that Tolkien is following Lewis here. I don't think he's going to be following Lewis in his Avalonian language uh, creation, right? Uh, it seems to me much more likely that that was going the other way. Did the word Sorn and Soroni for the that other species of now on Malacandra in Lewis's book come from some of Tolkien's words? Uh, I don't know. I was just interested, thought I would share. Um, uh, but anyway, uh, if anybody has any insight into that, I don't know exactly the, like what this suggests. Just noticed, thought I would share my observation. Okay, moving on. Then all at once, Jeremy began to speak. Now I see, he said, I see it all. The ships have set sail at last. Woe to the time! Behold, the mountain smokes and the earth trembles! He paused, and we sat staring, oppressed as by the oncoming of doom. The voices of the storm drew nearer. Then Jeremy began again. Woe to this time in the fell councils of Zigur! The king hath set forth his might against the lords of the west. The fleets of the Numenorians are like a land of many islands. Their masts are like the stems of a forest. Their sails are golden and black. Night is coming. 
They have gone against Avalone with naked swords. All the world waiteth. Why do the lords of the west make no sign? There was a dazzle of lightning and a deafening crash. As if the lords of the west were indeed making a sign. Um, Notice the sort of pattern here, right? Loudham came in talking about his word lists at the beginning of part two, or near the beginning of part two. He had word lists. That's what he had. And from those word lists, he had put together the existence of the different languages and the potential, like, some things about the culture of Numenor and its connection with Europe, right? And this, uh, its link to the thread of, uh, to this thread in, uh, in European history, right? In Germanic history. That's what he had. That's all that he had. Then this passage of text comes through and he excitedly brings it in, right? There's this new thing that he got, which tells a much more queer story. Except you'll notice the things that he didn't know are exactly the things that now they're seeing clearly. What is Zikor? Who is that? Who is the, what's the Sauron person? Or is that a person even? What is this word, Sauron? Right? Um, now he knows. Right? Now he knows. And they're now seeing it. Together. As in Raymer's dream thing. They are traveling? Sort of? Is this time travel to Numenor? Not really in exactly the, the Raymerian sense from part one, but it's like it at least. And what we're getting now through Jeremy all of a sudden is reads almost like a gloss, like the backstory of the... It's like the next step from the word lists to those fragments, to those text fragments, and now to the full story, though I say full, though they're still not really getting the full context of what Jeremy is talking about, but all of a sudden he's giving us an eyewitness account uh, of this. Um, yeah, Jennifer, I wonder too who Jeremy is kind of channeling here. It says he speaks of the Numenorians as if he's not one of them. Um, the fleets of the Numenorians are like a land of many islands. Um, yes. Yeah, I agree. There is some distance there. They have gone against the Avalon, even the, the, the they, right? They meaning the king and his followers, right? Is this, Jennifer, are we supposed to get from this a glimpse of the, of, of the division in Numenorean culture, right? That the Numenorians, the, the they here, he's, he is himself Numenorean, right? He's speak, he's, he refers to Zigur, right? So he's putting himself in an Adunayak context, Right. Presumably, if he were an elf, he would call him Sauron, not Zigur. Right. So I think he is Adunayak, or at least an Adunayak speaker. Right. Um, and yet, uh, Jennifer, I think your observation is a really important one. He speaks of the Numenorians as if from the outside. Right. Um, yeah. Oh, good. Matthew found an ex uh, uh, that Sorn was there in Tolkien's word lists back into the early days. Um the old word lists of in the in the teens. Okay, yeah. Well, um, yeah, Matthew, you can still hear it. Or, uh, 
if you remember from the Book of Lost Tales, Thorondor, the great eagle, was originally Sorondor, um, with an S. So I think you can see that Sorn, the link to Sorn and eagles, uh, certainly would seem to go all the way. But yeah, Sor- Sorontor, yeah, there we go. Yeah, exactly, exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, so yep, that seems to be old, an old link. Um, so if Lewis is getting it from Tolkien, it's just interesting that that jumped out, that he noticed and remembered that. Um, anyway, okay. Uh, okay. Uh, but again, notice, just like we were seeing in Loudum, in Loudum's own reflections and um, conclusions that he was drawing from these legends and myths that he was uncovering, um, that he was hearing, he was on the one hand talking about the past, seeing things, you know, figuring out things about the past, about how this myth of the straight road, which is lost and now all ways are crooked, um, how he's coming to understand this better and better, but also overlaid with that the his personal history, right, and his own father, him and his own father. So too here we see... Jeremy and Loudham remembering seeing, traveling back to Numenor, right? And seeing now an eyewitness, you know, firsthand this legend coming into focus. But at the same time, it's overlaid with catastrophe in the waking world, in the primary world, right? As the storm, it's like the very wrath of the Lords of the West that they are anticipating in the past in their memories, in the legend, in the myth, is also exploding upon them right there and then in the 1980s. Right? Behold, now the black wrath is come upon us out of the West. The eagles of the powers of the world have arisen in anger. The lords have spoken to Eru, and the fate of the world is changed. Do you not hear the wind coming and the roaring of the sea? said Loudham. Do you not see the wings of the eagles, and their eyes like thunderbolts, and their claws like forks of fire, said Jeremy? See, the abyss openeth, the sea falls, the mountains lean over. Urid Yakalubim. He got up unsteadily, and Laudum took his hand, and drew him towards him, as if to protect him. Together they went to the window, and stood there, peering out, talking to one another in a strange tongue. Irresistibly, I was reminded of two people hanging over the side of a ship. But suddenly, with a cry, they turned away and knelt down, covering their eyes. The glory hath fallen into the deep water, said Jeremy, weeping. Still the eagles pursue us, said Loudham. The wind is like the end of the world, and the waves are like mountains moving. We go into darkness." This description in the Notion Club papers makes real for me something the Lord of the Rings never did. And that is, the Numenorians, in the Numenorian tradition in Middle-earth, you hear people, people like Faramir and stuff, talking about the lands of exile. Exile 
is a word that's associated with the Numenorians of the Third Age in Middle-earth, right? And I have to admit, as a Lord of the Rings reader, I never got that. I mean, I never, it never made, I mean, I understood what they meant. And I could understand, I could understand it like metaphorically, right? Like that they have lost their land, but I'm like, but they're not really literally exiles, right? They, I mean, they've lost, so they're kind of like refugees, right? But they're not, it's not exactly, like to, I mean, there's a big difference between getting kicked out of your house and having your house burned down. I mean, it's both of them are a big deal, right? But like, if your house burns down and you have nowhere to live, it doesn't make you an exile, exactly, right? I mean, again, not to diminish it, but it's not the same. That's what I never got. That's what I never got. I'm like, okay, like I get it. I understand that they're upset about Numenor, right? That makes sense, right? I get that they, that, you know, Middle-earth feels like a come down, to put it really crudely, right? Okay, so like this, you know, it's, this land is pretty shabby compared to Numenor and can never replace in their hearts the lands that they've lost, right? Okay, I get that. But still, like, the word exile... um doesn't seem to never seem to fit to me. And now that was exacerbated when I started reading the Silmarillion, right? Started reading the Silmarillion and now I'm like, okay, the Noldor, now those are exiles, right? Okay, like they get kicked out, right? And doom is passed upon them and they're forbidden to return. Like, okay, that is what an exile looks like. So when Goadriel is talking about being an exile, I'm like, all right, Okay, so come on, Numenorians. Like, again, I'm not saying everything's peachy for you, but it's not the same, right? Anyway, that's how I always felt about, um, about the, 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 the concept of exile as attached to the Numenorians. Um, this description, I know nowhere in Tolkien's writings of a more visceral description of what it was like. You know, that when in the Lord of the Rings context the escape of Elendo and his sons on their ships, howsoever many those ships be, um, when that escape is described, it's like an escape, right? And, I mean, in fact, if anything, I always read it as like a deliverance, like they're being preserved from the destruction, so that instead of feeling... I mean, they can be sad about their home that is lost. Again, not going to grudge them that or anything... But at the same time, I always kind of felt like they should be at least as thankful that they were delivered in the way that they were, right? Clearly shielded from the driven before the storm, sure. But, I mean, they didn't die. They could have died. They kind of should have died, right? Um, uh, having been there, they were they were protected, right? Um, but this description, this description of what it was actually like... Um, so Jennifer, you see who Jeremy is now? We we get the important clue, I think, in this passage. Um, now that we see firsthand, sort of, secondhand, right, from a distance, but we're seeing the firsthand experience, now all of a sudden it feels quite different, right? The black wind. 
Elendil and Isildur and Anarion do not feel delivered, protected, shielded, right? Preserved from the downfall uh, and borne up like Noah in his ark to the Middle Earth and preserved. That's not their sensation at all. Still the eagles pursue us. The wind is like the end of the world and the waves are like mountains moving. We go into darkness. That sense of still the eagles pursue us. The wrath of the Valar did not pass over them. It did not spare them. It pushed them into exile. Right? They were not born up safely to Middle-earth. They are banished to Middle-earth. And remember, what is the heart of the lament? What is the core of the myth that's going to survive generation after generation after generation in the Germanic tradition? The straight road went westward. Now all roads are crooked. That's the core, right? That's the banishment. That's the exile. You can't go back even if you wanted to. You can't. You have been thrust away. No, we didn't kill you. But we, so like, them we killed and you we banished. And the wrath of the Valar escorted you firmly off the premises. And then we slammed the door behind you by closing the straight road. Um, yeah, so Brian, I agree. When we get it in this passage, it really feels, and to me, it was the first time that the story of the of Elendil and his people felt like a doom being visited upon a people who in some sense deserve it, Brian, as you say. Yes, yes, exactly. Um, uh, and yes, Brian, perhaps the emphasis in the later story of the faithful, um, again, it makes them sound more... It, makes them sound more like, you know, Noah's Ark, right? Uh, you know, uh, more like Lot being delivered from Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Um, yeah, because of the whole faithful thing. Um, it, it sounded like less of a condemnation with them, but here it sounds very much um, like, a, like a condemnation. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, good. Well, it is getting late. I'm almost done. Well, let me just keep going a little bit more. I was the last to go. As I stood by the door, I saw Raymer pick up a sheet of paper closely covered with writing. This is after the storm, right? So then the storm bursts. The biggest storm in recorded history. England gets trashed. Remember how it said, like, the meteorologists couldn't understand it? It was like a series of explosions, this, uh, this storm, like a myth exploding into the primary world or something. As I stood by the door, I saw Raymer pick up a sheet of paper covered, closely covered with writing. He put it into a drawer. Good night, or good morning, I said. We should be thankful at any rate that we were not struck by lightning or caught in the ruin of the college. We should indeed, said Raymer. I wonder. What do you wonder, I said. Well, I have an odd feeling, Nick, or suspicion, that we may all have been helping to stir something up. If not out of history, at any rate out of a very powerful world of imagination and memory. Jeremy would say perhaps out of both. 
in a very Barfieldian way, right, Matthew? I wonder if we may not find ourselves in other and worse dangers. I can't understand you, I said. But at any rate, I suppose you mean that you wonder whether they ought to go on. Oughtn't we to stop them? Stop Loudham and Jeremy, said Raymer. We can't do that now. Raymer is here explicitly suggesting, yeah, that storm might have been our fault. Uh, right? I mean, um, we, that, that we, we, we might have, we might have done that. We may all have been helping to stir something up. Um, what collectively they have been doing, uh, related to Raymer's uh, time travel mechanism from the first part, what they have been doing is bringing this stuff to the surface. Not just memories of theirs, not just dreams of theirs, Loudoms and Jeremy's, I mean. Um, but, um, but the real events, right? Because again, it's not just memory. It's not just uh, imagination, right? It's travel, right? both memory and imagination, the kind of travel that Raymer was talking about, right? They have come into contact with Atlantis. They are, in a sense, bringing Atlantis into their present or themselves back there. And what happens? Bam. A storm which is like this is a reason why no storm has been like it, right, in recorded history, because the last storm that was like it was at the fall of Atlantis. Um, yeah, Brian, it is a shame that we're not going to really find out what uh, other and worse dangers might be there. Okay. Um, yeah. And, Brianna, it's true, and uh, um, Mary was talking about this earlier, too. It does get kind of freaky that there was a really great storm in 1987 in England, uh, just a couple months away from when the storm is depicted as happening here in the Notion Club papers. And not only did not Tolkien not know about that, but he didn't live to see it. Right? Not only was he writing this in the 40s, but he didn't even live until 1987, uh, in theory, to have seen it. Um, so, yes, it is a little bit freaky that that actually happened, um, as Christopher points out you know, in the footnotes. We will come back to Raymer's discovery. The, the piece of paper, of course, that he is picking up off the floor is the leaf of paper which Loudham had said he brought from his father Edwin's journal, right? So his father Edwin uh, uh, comes in and, uh, and so he has this and it's in a weird script so he can't interpret it, right? But Raymer has found it. It was left on the floor uh, and, you know, knocked about by the storm. Um, but he finds it and puts it away. We'll come back to that, and then we'll go on through the Imram poem, uh, uh, Frankly's poem, that he's going to begin with. And then I've, I'm going to try to get through the end of part two uh, next time. We're going to we need to move along towards the end of uh, the Notion Club papers here at last, uh, so we can get to the third section of the book uh, and, and carry on moving through here. But anyway, I'll let you guys go. Thank you. Um, thanks, everybody. Uh, for joining me again tonight, and I will see you next week for hopefully the end of part two of the Notion Club Papers. Uh, bye now. Good night.